Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. All right, so today we are going to be picking back up with our study of the original Senate, this time again from a Federalist perspective, specifically James Madison writing in the Federalist Essays. So this is going to be Federalist number 63, uh, and it was produced on March 1st, 1788 for the Independent Journal of New York. Before we start reading the essay, though, I do want to stress one thing. Madison was always a nationalist, but he was a true nationalist. He wanted a union that benefited and burdened all equally. And he also believed in an empire of liberty kind of based on the Virginia plan, which the Virginia plan was rejected, but some key elements of it carried over. The Senate was not one of those. Again, I want to stress that when we covered the first essay by Madison, I talked about that. But the Virginia plan for the Senate would have been popular representation in the Senate or representation in the Senate based on apportionment. So that was rejected. Again, what we actually got was a Senate that was based on state identity. So each state had two senators, not the people of the state had two senators. No, the state itself had two senators. So with all that being said, I just wanted to mention that to differentiate him from Hamilton. And we're going to actually cover, before we end this series, we're going to cover at least one essay by Hamilton talking about the Senate. But I do want to stress he was not like Hamilton. Hamilton was a sectionalist who masqueraded as a nationalist, and he was very heavy-handed in what he wanted. He, he thought the common people were nothing more than a rabble. Madison had faith in the common people. He just thought that, hey, the government needs to be restrained, and what better way to do that than to have a handy, heavy, excuse me, heavy-handed government smack down the state governments when they run into what he called mischief. So now that we have some context, let's go ahead and get started. Again, this is Federalist number 63, written for the Independent Journal on Saturday, March 1st, 1788, by James Madison. And he says, To the people of the state of New York, a fifth desideratum illustrating the utility of a Senate is the want of a due sense of national character. Without a select and stable member of the government, the esteem of foreign powers will not only be forfeited by an unenlightened and variable policy proceeding from the causes already mentioned, but the national councils will not possess that sensibility to the opinion of the world, which is perhaps not less necessary in order to merit than it is to obtain its respect and confidence. And attention to the judgment of other nations is important to every government for two reasons. The one is that independently of the merits of any particular plan or measure, 
It is desirable on various accounts that it should appear to other nations as the offspring of a wise and honorable policy. The second is that in doubtful cases, particularly where the national councils may be warped by some strong passion or momentary interest, the presumed or known opinion of the impartial world may be the best guide that can be followed. What has not America lost by her want of character with foreign nations? And how many errors and follies would she not have avoided if the justice and propriety of her measures had, in every instance, been previously tried by the light in which they would probably appear to the unbiased part of mankind? Yet however requisite a sense of national character may be, it is evident that it can never be sufficiently possessed by a numerous and changeable body. It can only be found in a number so small that a sensible degree of the praise and blame of public measures may be the portion of each individual or in an assembly so durably invested with public trust that the pride and consequence of its members may be sensibly incorporated with the reputation and prosperity of the community. The half-yearly representatives of Rhode Island would probably have been little affected in their deliberations on the iniquitous measures of that state by arguments drawn from the light in which such measures would be viewed by foreign nations or even by the sister states. Whilst it can scarcely be doubted that if the concurrence of a select and stable body had been necessary, a regard to national character alone would have prevented the calamities under which that misguided people is now laboring. All right, and so here again, I want to highlight the differences between Madison and Hamilton. Madison saw the general government as a way to mandate liberty from the top down. Now, we can agree or disagree with that concept. I, I think time has proven that's a flawed way of thinking because what happens when that power becomes unaccountable but Madison, when he's talking there about the iniquities of the state of Rhode Island, Rhode Island did not ratify the Constitution. One of their biggest reasons being they specifically wanted to be able to inflate their currency and debase their, their money. I think they also repudiated some of their foreign debts. Madison was not in favor of that. Madison thought the honorable path was any privately contracted debts prior to the Revolution should still be paid in full, uh, be that for the union of the states or be that down to the private individual. So, but I want to contrast him to Hamilton because Hamilton would end up doing the exact opposite when he became the secretary of the treasury. Hamilton, he sold the document exactly how he thought people would best receive it. I, so in other words, he said one thing and then once he was in power, he did another. So when Hamilton gets in office, he starts immediately calling his first report on the credit of the union he starts immediately calling for a national debt. Th this is where the assumption scheme comes in. And if y'all don't know what that is, that's where the general government assumed the revolutionary debts of the member states of the union. So Hamilton wanted that because he was desperate for the union to be able to borrow money from foreign creditors. Now, Madison also saw the importance of this. Obviously, when you have a new country or a new governmental entity, yes, it is important for diplomatic reasons that you be recognized as a real government that that you be legitimate in the eyes of foreign creditors but madison still he never was really a paper money person none of the jeffersonians were however hamilton was a paper money man and specifically he wanted to borrow money and run up a domestic debt to subjugate the states to the general government just right off the bat so what he wanted to do was run up the debt and then issue bills of credit against that and have that be the circulating currency, producing what we would now call sort of a wealth effect where you pump a lot of money in in a short amount of time, funnel it to certain hands, and then let them spend it how they best saw fit. 
again, Hamilton was very elitist. He did not like the common man. He, he looked at the masses as nothing more than a rabble. So I just wanted to draw a line of contrast there because Madison, yes, he's calling for, even in his defense of the Senate, he's calling for a meritorious Senate that can check some of these popular abuses like what he perceived going on in Rhode Island. Because again, Rhode Island specifically wanted to inflate their currency and not act in good faith on their debts. So just wanted to provide some context there, but let's go ahead and get back to the essay. I add as a sixth defect, the want and some important cases of a due responsibility in the government to the people arising from that frequency of elections, which in other cases produces this responsibility. This remark will perhaps appear not only new, but paradoxical. It must nevertheless be acknowledged when explained to be as undeniable as it is important. Responsibility, in order to be reasonable, must be limited to objects within the power of the responsible party, and in order to be effectual, must relate to operations of that power, of which a ready and proper judgment can be formed by the constituents. The objects of government may be divided into two general classes, the one dependent on measures which have singly an immediate and sensible operation, the other dependent on a succession of well-chosen and well-connected measures which have a gradual and perhaps unobserved operation. The importance of the latter description to the collective and permanent welfare of every country needs no explanation. And yet it is evident that an assembly elected for so short a term as to be unable to provide more than one or two links in a chain of measures on which the general welfare may essentially depend ought not to be answerable for the final result any more than a steward or tenant engaged for one year could be justly made to answer for places or improvements which could not be accomplished in less than half a dozen years. Nor is it possible for the people to estimate the share of influence which their annual assemblies may respectively have on events resulting from the mixed transactions of several years. It is sufficiently difficult to preserve a personal responsibility in the members of a numerous body for such acts of the body as have an immediate detached and palpable operation on its constituents. The proper remedy for this defect must be an additional body in the legislative department, which having sufficient permanency to provide for such objects as require a continued attention, and a train of measures may be justly and effectually answerable for the attainment of those objects. Thus far, I have considered the circumstances which point out the necessity of a well-constructed Senate only as they relate to the representatives of the people. To a people as little blinded by prejudice or corrupted by flattery as those whom I address, I shall not scruple to add that such an institution may be sometimes necessary as a defense to the people against their own temporary errors and delusions. As the cool and deliberate sense of the community ought in all governments and actually will in all free governments ultimately prevail over the views of its rulers, so there are particular moments in public affairs when the people stimulated by some irregular passion or some illicit advantage or misled by the artful misrepresentations of interested men may call for measures which they themselves will afterwards be the most ready to lament and condemn. And here Madison is absolutely correct about the propensity for popular abuses and popular excesses. Think about the last two years. All these second-rate hucksters in the general government and even in some state governments hyping up the hysteria, playing on people's fears. People have been whipped into a frenzy. They have gone running and begging for more regulation, more mandates, more vaccines, more of this, more of that. They've done all this stuff because they've been misled. Madison saw that, yes, you can get a mob to be misled, and mob justice can be very nasty. He was right about that. 
He was right about that. And the Senate, as he's pitching it, sounds like an incredible way to curb that excess. We haven't gotten to that part yet, but when he talks about what the Senate is supposed to do when it comes to curbing these popular abuses, he is spot on. The issue is that never should have went above the state level. You cannot give that kind of power to a, a distant and unelectable, or excuse me, I'm sorry, not unelectable, but a distant and unaccountable general government. You cannot do that because the second you do that, they become free of any restraint. Whereas at the state level, you can at least go there and you can protest right there in front of them. How many people, let's say if you live in California, how many people in California are going to go all the way to D.C. to protest? Now, granted, yes, there will be some, but if you just want to protest your senator specifically, how are they going to know that? If, especially if you're out there as part of like the upcoming truckers convoy for the U.S., how are they going to know who you're there for? Whereas if you keep them at your state and you show up on their doorsteps at City Hall or at the state capitol, whatever the case may be, they know exactly why you're there. They know exactly why you're there. You're there for them. Now, Granted, I'm not advocating for any violence or anything of that nature, but you can at least make your voice heard in that scenario. You can say, I'm very upset with this policy. And so if we had stuck to what Madison foresaw or what Madison envisioned, granted, I think he's being somewhat utopian with this, but if we had been able to stick to that, the Senate is actually the best branch of the entire general government. But again, in my opinion, the problem is you cannot take that sort of power beyond the state level and keep it accountable to the people that it's supposed to be there to protect. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay. In these critical moments, how salutary will be the interference of some temperate and respectable body of citizens in order to check the misguided career and to suspend the blow meditated by the people against themselves until reason, justice, and truth can regain their authority over the public mind? What bitter anguish would not the people of Athens have often escaped if their government had contained so provident a safeguard against the tyranny of their own passions? Popular liberty might then have escaped the indelible reproach of decreeing to the same citizens the hemlock on one day and statues on the next. My gosh, could that not have been written in March of 2022? I mean, seriously, could that not have been written in March of 2022? Let's actually, let's do some word replacement here. So Madison is saying, in these critical moments, how salutary will be the interference of some temperate and respectable body of citizens in order to check the misguided career and to suspend the blow meditated by the people against themselves until reason, justice, and truth can regain their authority over the public mind. Again, as I mentioned earlier, think about all the hysteria, the sheer hysteria that we've seen in the public at large over the past two years. And you still have pockets of the country where people do not want to go back to normal. You have people like out in Seattle, they still want the lockdowns, they still want the mask mandates, they still want vaccination mandates, they want this, they want that, New York. But their politicians are seeing where the political winds are blowing, and now they're starting to backtrack from all that stuff. Again, this is part of the problem with being able to have a demagogue who can whip the mob into a frenzy. And that's what Madison is saying the Senate is there to guard against. But again, let's go ahead and do some word replacement. So Madison says, what bitter anguish would not the people of Athens have often escaped if their government had contained so provident a safeguard against the tyranny of their own passions? So that's what we're going to do word replacement with. What bitter anguish would not the people of America have often escaped 
if their government had contained so provident a safeguard against the tyranny of the pharmaceutical companies, against the tyranny of the corporate press, and against the tyranny of their own passions because they fell for it. I'm telling you, Madison could have written this today. Today, about this country. He doesn't even have to make a reference to Athens. He could have written it about this country. Because he saw, when you have demagogic politicians who whip the mob into a frenzy, you can get some extremely, extremely bad outcomes because people will buy it every time just about or at least most of the people not all of the people but enough of the people that you can make life very uncomfortable and i really want y'all to think about this because we are now going on three years of the covid insanity and it looks like the democratic politicians are finally starting to realize they're probably going to get slaughtered in this year's midterm elections but we've lost over two years two years to all of this and Madison's talking about it. This is what the Senate was there to stop. They were to be a somewhat independent body and an aristocratic body subject to the guidelines of what's called noblesse oblige. So basically you have noble aristocrats who act in the best interest because they are an independent body or at least a somewhat independent body. And then he's, he goes on to say, popular liberty might then have escaped the indelible reproach of decreeing to the same citizens the hemlock on one day and statues on the next. So he's saying there, popular liberty could have been saved from itself. You wouldn't have been able to have the masses vote everyone's liberty away because they were afraid. You would have a strong Republican Senate there, Republican in the lowercase r sense, a strong Republican Senate there to check these excesses and say, no, this far shall you go, but no further, calm down. So let's go ahead and get back to the essay, but really think about all this stuff as we continue and hear what else Madison has to say about what the purpose was. It may be suggested that a people spread over an extensive region cannot, like the crowded inhabitants of some small district, be subject to the infection of violent passions or to the danger of combining in pursuit of unjust measures. I am far from denying that this is a distinction of peculiar importance. I have, on the contrary, endeavored in a former paper to show that it is one of the principal recommendations of a confederated republic. At the same time, this advantage ought not be considered as superseding the use of auxiliary precautions. It may even be remarked that the same extended situation which will exempt the people of America from some of the dangers incident to lesser republics will expose them to the inconveniency of remaining for a longer time under the influence of those misrepresentations which the combined industry of interested men may succeed in distributing among them. It adds no small weight to all these considerations to recollect that history informs us of no long-lived republic which had not a senate. Sparta, Rome, and Carthage are, in fact, the only states to whom that character can be applied. In each of the two first, there was a senate for life. The constitution of the Senate in the last is less known. Circumstantial evidence makes it probable that it was not different in this particular from the two others. It is at least certain that it had some quality or other which rendered it an anchor against popular fluctuations and that a smaller council drawn out of the Senate was appointed not only for life, but filled up vacancies itself. These examples, though as unfit for the imitation as they are repugnant to the genius of America, are notwithstanding when compared with the fugitive and turbulent existence of other ancient republics, very instructive proofs of the necessity of some institution that will blend stability with liberty. I am not aware of the circumstances which distinguish the American from other popular governments, as well as ancient as modern. 
and which render extreme circumspection necessary in reasoning from the one case to the other. But after allowing due weight to this consideration, it may still be maintained that there are many points of similitude which render these examples not unworthy of our attention. Many of the defects, as we have seen, which can only be supplied by a senatorial institution are common to a numerous assembly frequently elected by the people and to the people themselves. There are others peculiar to the former which require the control of such an institution. The people can never willfully betray their own interest, but they may possibly be betrayed by the representatives of the people, and the danger will be evidently greater where the whole legislative trust is lodged in the hands of one body of men than where the concurrence of separate and dissimilar bodies is required in every public act. The difference most relied on between the American and other republics consists in the principle of representation, which is the pivot on which the former move and which is supposed to have been unknown to the latter, or at least to the ancient part of them. The use which has been made of this difference in reasonings contained in former papers will have shown that I am disposed neither to deny its existence nor to undervalue its importance. I feel the less restraint, therefore, in observing that the position concerning the ignorance of the ancient governments on the subject of representation is by no means precisely true in the latitude commonly given to it. Without entering into a disquisition, which here would be misplaced, I will refer to a few known facts in support of what I advance. In the most pure democracies of Greece, many of the executive functions were performed not by the people themselves, but by officers elected by the people and representing the people in their executive capacity. Prior to the reform of Salon, Athens was governed by nine archons, annually elected by the people at large. The degree of power delegated to them seems to be left in great obscurity. Subsequent to that period, we find an assembly, first of four and afterwards of 600 members, annually elected by the people, and partially representing them in their legislative capacity. Since they were not only associated with the people in the function of making laws, but had the exclusive right of originating legislative propositions to the people. The Senate of Carthage, also whatever might be its power, or the duration of its appointment, appears to have been elective by the suffrages of the people. Similar instances might be traced in most, if not all, the popular governments of antiquity. Lastly, in Sparta, we meet with the ephors, and in Rome with the tribunes, two bodies, small indeed in numbers, but annually elected by the whole body of the people, and considered as the representatives of the people, almost in their plenipotentiary capacity. The Cosme of Crete, were also annually elected by the people and have been considered by some authors as an institution analogous to those of Sparta and Rome, with this difference only, that in the election of that representative body, the right of suffrage was communicated to a part only of the people. Okay, and so here in this history lesson, Madison is basically telling us, look, we have all these examples from the past. The one thing that's going to differentiate America from these former republics is going to be how we elect the senators. In Greece, in Sparta, in Athens, in Rome, they were elected by the people as a whole. So everybody got a say in who was going to be a senator. Whereas here in America, we're going to have them elected indirectly, and more importantly, as representatives of the states as states. They are not going to be representatives of the people. The people will have very little say in that because we want them to be independent of the excesses or independent of the mob. So he, again, he's spelling out the case for this model because he's saying we need some sort of check. Look at what happened when it was a pure democratic system in these other forms of government. The, the founders, almost to a man, 
Uh, some of them were very populistic within their own state, but almost to a man. They all abhorred the idea of a pure democracy. And so that's what Madison's talking about here. He's like, look, we have all these examples. We're going to avoid this pitfall because we're going to do it differently. Now, again, fast forward in time, when we get the 17th Amendment, all of this goes out the window because that's exactly what we did. We reduced the senators to super representatives. That's it. They no longer are really there on behalf of their state as a state. They are there on behalf of an extremely large representative district. And it, I, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate because, again, here in Federalist 63, James Madison is saying this specifically is what's going to make us different from those in the past. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay. From these facts, to which many others might be added, it is clear that the principle of representation was neither unknown to the ancients nor wholly overlooked in their political constitutions. The true distinction between these and the American governments lies in the total exclusion of the people in their collective capacity from any share in the latter and not in the total exclusion of the representatives of the people from the administration of the former. The distinction, however, thus qualified, must be admitted to leave a most advantageous superiority in favor of the United States. But to ensure to this advantage its full effect, we must be careful not to separate it from the other advantage of an extensive territory. For it cannot be believed that any form of representative government could have succeeded within the narrow limits occupied by the democracies of Greece. In answer to all these arguments suggested by reason, illustrated by examples, and enforced by our own experience, the jealous adversary of the Constitution will probably content himself with repeating that a Senate appointed not immediately by the people and for the term of six years must gradually acquire a dangerous preeminence in the government and finally transform it into a tyrannical aristocracy. To this general answer, the general reply ought to be sufficient that liberty may be endangered by the abuses of liberty as well as by the abuses of power, that there are numerous instances of the former as well as of the latter, and that the former rather than the latter are apparently most to be apprehended by the United States. But a more particular reply may be given. Before such a revolution can be effected, the Senate, it is to be observed, must in the first place corrupt itself, must next corrupt the state legislatures, must then corrupt the House of Representatives, and must finally corrupt the people at large. It is evident that the Senate must be first corrupted before it can attempt an establishment of tyranny. Without corrupting the state legislatures, it cannot prosecute the attempt because the periodical change of members would otherwise regenerate the whole body. Without exerting the means of corruption with equal success on the House of Representatives, the opposition of that co-equal branch of the government would inevitably defeat the attempt, and without corrupting the people themselves, a succession of new representatives would speedily restore all things to their pristine order. Is there any man who can seriously persuade himself that the proposed Senate can, by any possible means, within the compass of human address, arrive at the object of a lawless ambition through all these obstructions? And so I think here again we're getting some of Madison the Utopian, so... He's, he's basically asking, like, hey, if the Senate is going to be corrupted, it's going to first have to corrupt itself, then it's going to have to work its way into the other congressional branch, and then finally out to the people themselves. Now, this is where I, I disagree with Madison a little bit. I do still think that politics are downstream of culture. So I think what happens is you get people who are willing to accept less and less of a standard in the conduct of their public officials, and then you see the fruits of that. Now, we can say maybe that's because of the 17th Amendment, or we can just say it's kind of a function of things, right? So we can say 
that bad times create good men, good men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create bad times. We, we can chalk it up to that. But I do think Madison is being utopian because he's acting as if, oh, there's no way. Look at all these checks built into the system. And it's like he never stopped to think, what happens if all three of these branches start colluding together to abuse the people? And that's, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to what I said at, earlier in the episode. That's where you cannot have this sort of power beyond the state boundary. You cannot remove physical accountability of the politicians who are going to wield it. You just cannot do that. Because the moment you do that, they become independent of heaven themselves. So it's something, again, I, it's like Madison never stopped to think about what happens if this thing goes rogue. So let's go ahead and get back to the essay. If reason condemns the suspicion, the same sentence is pronounced by experience. The Constitution of Maryland furnishes the most apposite example. The Senate of that state is elected, as the federal Senate will be, indirectly by the people and for a term less by one year only than the federal Senate. It is distinguished also by the remarkable prerogative of filling up its own vacancies within the term of its appointment, and at the same time is not under the control of any such rotation as is provided for the federal Senate. There are some other lesser distinctions which would expose the former to colorable objections that do not lie against the latter. If the federal Senate therefore really contained the danger which has been so loudly proclaimed, some symptoms at least of a like danger ought by this time to have been betrayed by the Senate of Maryland, but no such symptoms have appeared. On the contrary, the jealousies at first entertained by men of the same description with those who view with terror the correspondent part of the federal Constitution have been gradually extinguished by the progress of the experiment. And the Maryland Constitution is daily deriving from the salutary operation of this part of it, a reputation in which it will probably not be rivaled by that of any state in the Union. And in my opinion, this is where Madison totally, totally misses the mark. So he's trying to compare the federal Senate to the state Senate of Maryland. And again, the one huge difference there is that the state senators of Maryland cannot run away to a distant land and make themselves independent of all of their constituents. They cannot do that. Now, he's also talking about that the senators of Maryland are not subject to the control of any such rotation as is provided for the federal Senate. I don't know what he's talking about there because there's not term limits on federal senators. The only way to get them out is to vote them out when their term expires. You, you cannot recall them and they don't have any sort of term limit. So there's no, hey, you can only run for two terms and then you're out. There's none of that. So I don't really know what he's getting at there. But again, biggest difference there is the state of Maryland can probably run an ideal Senate at this time because it's small, it's mostly homogenous, and they are physically close to the people that they are representing. Actually, Madison does say that they are elected indirectly. So I'm assuming probably what happened is that the people were canvassed. So basically they were asked for an opinion, but then the legislature or the uh, state house of representatives probably appointed them. Uh, I have not looked that up yet. So don't quote me on that, but that, that's what I'm assuming based on what Madison's saying here. But again, they are close at hand and they are subject to popular pressure, if not formally being able to be removed or anything of that nature, they are still subject to the pressure of their neighbors. Whereas once they get into D.C. and become swamp creatures, they will not feel that sort of pressure at all until it's campaign season. So for four and a half years out of six, 
They are completely independent once they get in office and they can do whatever they want. And then that last year and a half, they're only going to say what their pollsters tell them is polling well. And it's, it's very disappointing but that Madison could not see the difference there between a state Senate and a federal Senate in terms of potential for abuse of power and things of that nature. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay. But if anything could silence the jealousies on this subject, it ought to be the British example. The Senate there, instead of being elected for a term of six years and of being unconfined to particular families or fortunes, is an hereditary assembly of opulent nobles. The House of Representatives, instead of being elected for two years and by the whole body of the people, is elected for seven years and in very great proportion by a very small proportion of the people. Here, unquestionably, ought to be seen in full display the aristocratic usurpations and tyranny which are at some future period to be exemplified in the United States. Unfortunately, however, for the anti-federal argument, the British history informs us that this hereditary assembly has not been able to defend itself against the continual encroachments of the House of Representatives, and that it no sooner lost the support of the monarch than it was actually crushed by the weight of the popular branch. As far as antiquity can instruct us on this subject, its examples support the reasoning which we have employed. In Sparta, the Ephers, the annual representatives of the people, were found an overmatch for the Senate for life, continually gained on its authority, and finally drew all power into their own hands. The tribunes of Rome, who were the representatives of the people, prevailed, it is well known, in almost every contest with the Senate for life, and in the end gained the most complete triumph over it. The fact is the more remarkable, as unanimity was required in every act of the tribunes, even after their number was augmented to ten. It proves the irresistible force possessed by that branch of a free government, which has the people on its side. To these examples might be added that of Carthage, whose senate, according to the testimony of Polybius, instead of drawing all power into its vortex, had, at the commencement of the Second Punic War, lost almost the whole of its original portion. Besides the conclusive evidence resulting from this assemblage of facts that the federal Senate will never be able to transform itself by gradual usurpations into an independent and aristocratic body, we are warranted in believing that if such a revolution should ever happen from causes which the foresight of man cannot guard against, the House of Representatives, with the people on their side, will at all times be able to bring back the Constitution to its primitive form and principles. Against the force of the immediate representatives of the people, Nothing will be able to maintain even the constitutional authority of the Senate, but such a display of enlightened policy and attached to the public good as will divide with that branch of the legislature the affections and support of the entire body of the people themselves. Publius. And so that concludes the Federalist essay number 63, at the risk of repeating myself too much. I do just want to hammer home again in that last paragraph. We are definitely getting Madison the Utopian as he outright says... The federal Senate will never be able to transform itself by gradual usurpations into an independent and aristocratic body. And he, again, he it's like he never stopped to think, what happens if all three branches start to collude? He always thought in terms of, well, you're going to obviously have these checks from one branch to the other. And in the, in the case of the Senate, he said, well, look, the House of Representatives can protect the people from bad legislation that comes from the Senate they can pull the Constitution back to where it was meant to be, so on and so forth. And you had some of that. In the election of 1800, I would say that's the closest you had the popular branch acting the way that Madison said it would, right? That's when you usher in John Randolph of Roanoke. You have Nathaniel Macon, Albert Gallatin, 
John Taylor of Caroline, so on and so forth. You have people in that one election who cared. And even some of the representatives brought in during that time had their own problems, as we discussed in the old Republicans episode. But one time in our 200-plus-year history have we had the House of Representatives act as the check that Madison foresaw. Aside from that, at least that I've seen, it's always been they collude together and they punt their responsibility to the executive office, making the president an elected king, or you just get the judicial branch basically acting completely unilaterally and without any sort of care what the popular will is because they are above the law. So again, Madison is being very, very utopian in his outlook. And I I don't, I refuse to believe that he couldn't at least conceive of this. So maybe there was some duplicity here just so he could try to get the constitution passed because Madison at this point was desperate to have a stronger central authority So maybe he's just, again, telling people what they want to hear. But it's very disappointing seeing what we actually got out of all this when we see what the supporters of the document told us it should have been. So I don't know. Men are not angels, and and maybe we just never could live up to that standard. But seeing what it was supposed to be versus what it's become, very disappointing in my opinion. But we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. I'm sorry to end this on a negative note, but we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. In our next senatorial episode, we're going to look at an essay from John Jay, and then we're going to wrap the senatorial series up with an essay from Alexander Hamilton. Both of these are going to come from the Federalist Papers. But thank you all again for your time and for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener today. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian Revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.